live streamed, okay? All right, Krishna, who's that group? Shama Gopa Rupa. All right, Krishna, please. All glories to Srila Prabhupada. All right, Krishna. So, um, so maybe when I start reading, people could mute or serve up you uh, or Jaisita, you could uh, we could mute everybody. So, um, so at that time with Satyavati, there was a king, the king of her country, which was Chedi, who had this amazing crystal aircraft. It was like a flying saucer sort of, but it was made out of crystal and he could fly anywhere in the world with it. And he was fighting against the Asuras, the demons were invading the world. So, uh, so now Parashara, the sage, is going to explain to Satyavati the story of that Vasu, how he came to be the emperor of the world, uh, how he got all these powers. So that's what I'm going to be reading now. So here we go. Uh, so Parashara, the great sage, smiled. I was just about to explain those very topics. Listen carefully, and you again see all that I see. So by his speaking, Satyavati can see whatever he says. Satyavati folded her hands and bowed to the sage. Parashara smiled and began to speak. Satya saw it all as if she were there. Mighty King Vasu was not always powerful and happy. Indeed, as a young prince, he was rather sad and disappointed. He was born in the mighty Kuru dynasty, but into a secondary branch. There were more princes than kingdoms to rule. So young Vasu inherited only the emblems and insignias of royalty, not the power to do great good, as he fervently wished. For he had no kingdom, no way to engage his exceptional abilities, no chance to fulfill his dreams. Moreover, the world was peaceful and prosperous, so there was little for this heroic prince to do. I can see him through your words, Satyavati said. He's quite a handsome young prince, but he does indeed look lonely and sad. Yes, and Prince Vasu was also lonely because he did not find a princess he could love. He would not marry without love. Perhaps in that sense, the prince was much like you. What do you mean, Satya asked with a deep blush, riveted to Parashara's words. I mean only this, he replied. When we cannot truly be ourselves in the world, nor be with someone we love with heart and mind, we may be lonely even when surrounded by many people. Satyavati again blushed. How did the sage know her so well? And how could she, a fisherman's daughter, resemble a Kuru prince? What did Prince Vasu do? Satya asked anxiously. He gave up all hope of finding love or purpose in this world. So several years before your birth, Prince Vasu put down his weapons, renounced his opulent life, and retired to the deep forest to an ashram as lonely as his heart. 
Satyavati gasped. I see it all, she said, eyes closed in meditation. The prince went deep into the wilderness. Yes, there he fixed his mind on a higher world he might achieve through mystic yoga practice. He aimed for Indra Loka, the fabulous world of Indra, Lord of the Devas. Of course, you saw that celestial sphere. Satyavati nodded. And so Parashara continued, this determined prince poured his fierce warrior resolve into his yoga practice. He delighted in austerity and conquered not other warriors, but his own senses and desires. On rare occasions, when other yogis visited that secluded out hermitage, the prince's power and determination astounded them. I too admire that prince, Satyavati said. I admire him greatly. He preserved his autonomy and dignity. He found a situation where he could at least rule himself and not be subject to the whims of others. Indeed, he was not even subject to the whims of his own body. He, the soul, ruled the body. So, Parashara said with a smile, you know about the soul. Oh, yes, Satya said. I spent so many years serving the sages and listening to their talks. They taught me all about the true self. Of course, the sage said, but uh, they are wise and kind. They do credit to the Brahmin order, but I shall continue my story. Yes, please do. Parashara nodded. So assiduously did the prince follow his path that he would soon reach Indra's celestial realm. But then something unprecedented happened. Indra himself, Lord of the Devas, came to earth to see the prince. Indra himself, here on earth. Yes, as I said, it was unprecedented. The prince could hardly believe his eyes. As described in the Veda, and as you have seen, Indra's hair and complexion shone with the golden hue of sunshine. He held his Vajra weapon that shoots indomitable lightning, as it did in the battle against the Asuras. Yes, Satyavati whispered, eager to hear more. Eyes closed, carried on Parashara's words, she saw Prince Vasu bow and say to the Deva leader, Lord Indra, you, you honor me greatly by your visit to my poor hermitage. How may I serve you? Indra replied, O Prince, I know of your disappointment and pain and why you came to this wilderness. You have indeed earned your passage to my world. Joyful, the Prince assumed that Indra had come to escort him to that celestial world, though he did not grasp why the great Deva would personally come for that. But the prince quickly learned that Indra came with a very different purpose. Pacing in front of the prince, deep in thought, Indra turned to face him and said, despite your merit, Vasu, or more accurately, because of it, I ask you to remain on earth and finish your natural life here. Vasu's heart sank at these words. He pleaded, Lord Indra, in my heart, I already gave up the earth. There is nothing for me here. Oh, but there is, Indra said with a knowing smile. The noon sun shone brightly on the Deva's golden hair. He looked on the downcast prince with amused sympathy. In the future, Vasu, you will achieve higher worlds. But for now, protect the earth as I protect the worlds above. Vasu looked up at the Deva and said, protect the earth? From what, Lord Indra? And how? I have no kingdom no army. My Lord, I ask with great respect. You know that earth flourishes. The citizens are happy and safe. 
We truly live a golden age since Parashuram slew the wicked kings. As you know, saintly kings born of Brahmin fathers rule everywhere. Even the Kuru monarch Pratipa sits like a grand yogi on the bank of sacred Ganga and meditates on the world's welfare. Oh, Indra, this world needs no defender. Even you, my lord, show your pleasure with earth by sending rain at the best times and places, sustaining all creatures. It is truly a golden age. Please let me go to your world. I understand your feelings, Indra said. I shall now explain mine. With Vishnu's aid, we devas won our battle with the Asuras. We did not win the war. The Asura Guru Shukra brought the slain Asuras back to life. They will attack again. Won't Vishnu stop them again? Perhaps. This time the Asuras will attack with greater cunning. Indra then explained the Asura strategy as articulated in Sunset Mountain, including the attacks on Vishnu's Brahmanas. Vasushak was visible in every feature of his face. Yet no one on earth suspects that Asuras walk among us. We see only peace and prosperity. Indra smiled and shook his head. How little you people of earth understand your danger. You are like babes sleeping in a garden as a tiger stalks you. Asuras are slowly infiltrating, are slowly invading your planet, undetected by any of you. The Asuras chose your planet precisely because it is so prospering, naive, and unsuspecting. They will soon take birth as princes of royal houses. Thus, without firing a weapon, they will inherit great kingdoms. Vasu said, and they really have that power to take birth where they like. Korsindra said, remember, this, the Asuras are half-brothers of the Devas. Their powers are similar to ours. Astonished, Vasu shivered as cool breezes blew over him. They will actually attack sages. That is an evil beyond imagination. Even in the bodies of beasts, they know exactly what they are doing. How can they then avoid their guilt? They believe they can. They believe the universe is ultimately a mere mechanism, and they have powers like the devas. Vasu's face and body tightened in steely determination. I will do all I can to help you stop the Asuras. I will gladly abandon my ascetic practice and celestial ambition and fight for this noble cause. But how can I help? I have no kingdom, no army. I am alone in the world. Indra smiled. I will give special power to a royal dynasty that will defend Dharma on this planet. I've chosen you to lead that dynasty. Of course, you must accept. Stunned by this offer, Prince Vasu stood motionless. Indra smiled again and said, if you do protect Dharma from the Asuras, Dharma will protect you. And in your next life, you will have your choice of worlds in which to reside. Is this really happening? Said the startled prince. Yes, it is. I offer you my friendship. Protect the world on my behalf. Become my friend and I shall be a friend to you. Prince Vasu, still astonished, stammered, of course, Lord Indra, I wish to be your friend. That is a great honor for me. But how will I fight mighty Asuras? I have no kingdom, no army. Indra laughed. Oh, I will fix that. I shall make you the emperor of the world. Prince Vasu's eyebrows shot up and he gasped, an emperor? Lord Indra, for generations, imperial power has rested with the Kurus of Hastinapura. Noble Pratipa rules there. 
I am not his heir. Yes, the Kurus of Hastinapur have long protected this world, but peace and plenty have created a false confidence among kings. The Kuru Lord Pratipa sits and meditates, praying for the good of all creatures. He is righteous to be sure, but unprepared to fight an Asura invasion. Dire circumstances call for special measures. You shall be king of kings, but you will need an imperial seat. Therefore, I shall grant you the excellent kingdom of Chedi. Basu's eyes open wide. Chedi? It is indeed a rich and mighty realm, but Chedi has a ruler. I cannot usurp his throne. I would offend Dharma, as you well know. Granting that your words must come true, and I somehow become Chedi's king, no ruler on earth will recognize me as king of kings. Great Indra laughed. Trust me, young prince, you shall be king of Echedi and emperor of the world, and we will not offend Dharma in the process. The astonished young prince again bowed and assured Indra of his trust. The Deva Lord said, Shady is an excellent country. It abounds in lovely lakes, hills, rivers, and forests. All that earth offers, its people are virtuous. They do not lie, even in jest. Shady boasts a formidable army that you will lead. Indeed, my friend, Shady excels other realms in its virtue, beauty, and treasure. But what will I do, my lord, when I become Shady's ruler? Shall I march with the Shady army against the Asura princes? Indra shook his head. No, not now. For now, you can defend the Brahmins. I will give you special power for that. We cannot oppose Asura princes yet, for they are still consolidating their power and have broken no law. We too must follow Dharma, or we will lose our own power. Still racked by doubts, Prince Vasu wanted to ask, how will I fight Asuras with superhuman powers? But fearing he would try Indra's patience, he kept his head bowed and said nothing. Indra seemed to read his mind. I will grant you extraordinary martial power. When they see your power, all the world's monarchs, those that are not Asuras, shall honor and follow you. Vasu wondered what form that martial power would take. Again, Indra replied to his thoughts, I will grant you a military aircraft like those of the devas. It is a large crystal craft with palatial comforts. This silent craft moves at unfathomable speed and will be guided by your will alone. It will fly to any place on earth and with it, you will fight the asuras. I will grant you other powers as well, but use them only to protect the innocent. But we must not panic the world. Speak of the asura invasion only to your wife and later to your sons. My wife? Sons? Yes, you will learn about that soon enough. You may also speak the truth to those who are devoted to Vishnu. Just remember your world is in grave danger. I've chosen you to protect it. Always act as my friend. Obey my instructions and you will be victorious. I shall obey, the prince said with a bow. I'm most grateful. Indra nodded in a grave tone. He gave the prince final instructions. You renounce the pleasures of this world. In that same spirit of detachment, you must serve the world as a great king. You must never use imperial power to exploit others. Serve the world unselfishly. Your success, your glory depends on it. Rule as a form of spiritual yoga without pride or vanity, and you will succeed. Prince Vasu bowed and assured Indra that his instructions would be faithfully followed. Indra nodded, go now to Chedi. Do not doubt my words. I have no doubt, Vasu said, saluting the Deva Lord. As Prince Vasu gazed in wonder and marveled at all that Indra had said, 
the day the Lord rose into the sky. Looking down at Vasu, he said in a voice that reverberated as deeply as thunder, so be it, Prince. Go to Chedi now. At once Indra vanished. Vasu remained there for some time, staring at the place in the sky where he last saw Indra. So that's the end of that chapter. Do you want to hear a little more? Of course. Absolutely. Okay. Next chapter. On the bank of the Jamuna River in the village. Oh. So there's a little scene of Satyavati. Prince Vasu could not imagine how he was to become king of Chedi. Why would the citizens of Chedi accept him? But then Indra's thundering words echoed in the sky, go to Chedi now. Sighing deeply, running his fingers through his wavy hair, the handsome prince cast his aside his incredulity and swung into action. Chanting mantras, he extinguished the sacred fire into which he had made daily offerings. Um, he had never intended to return to civilization on this planet. And he had no belongings but the ragged cloth that covered him. I will travel light, he joked to himself. Guided only by sun, moon, and stars, he must labor his way through wild and dense forest in the general direction of Chedi. It would be a long journey. Eventually, he must come to some village or other. There he would ask directions. But no sooner had Prince Vasu taken his first steps than a forest path covered in soft cropped grass opened before him a path that was not there before. Indra was truly guiding him. The prince had spent the last few years in austerity, giving his emaciated body just enough food and water to support his meditation. But new energy filled him. Indeed, as he walked, power filled his limbs. Clarity filled his mind. Eager to test his new powers, he grabbed a stone and hurled it an impossible distance with startling precision. Great Indra had indeed empowered him. Vasu could not doubt the rest. After days of travel, wilderness transformed into lush farms with neat rows of peas, cauliflower, okra, eggplant, beans, and many other vegetables. By the way, I did the research. This is that. These are the vegetables that grew back then. Varieties of rice, wheat, multicolored millets, and other grains grew in lush abundance. Black pepper, cinnamon, turmeric, cardamom, sugar cane, Mustard, sesame, betel nut, ginger, and cumin all painted the landscape in bright geometric colors that flashed in the bright sun. Wide fields of flowers in radiant colors carpeted swaths of countryside. The heady fragrance of rose, jasmine, chumpa, and other flowers thrilled the weary traveler. A sparkling liquid lattice of rivers, streams, and channels fed crystalline currents to thirsty, many-hued orchards laden with bananas, mangoes, jackfruit, berries, and myriad other fruits. Even common farm workers dressed well in fine, airy cotton with plentiful ornaments of gold and semi-precious stones. Reaching a particularly prosperous village, he confirmed that he had entered the kingdom of Chedi. As Indra had told, the people were kind, affluent, virtuous, these free citizens lived under constitutional monarchy in which every citizen, whether beggar or monarch, must obey dharma, sacred law. These free people might soon be ruled by asura tyrants. Yet Indra's command and Vasu's own good senses forbade him from revealing the perilous state of their land. 
absorbed in observation and deep reflection, he reached the outskirts of Chady's splendid capital, Pearl River, in less time than he thought possible. He gazed upon the handsome home surrounded by leafy gardens that lined well-shaded avenues, spacious plazas paved in fine tiles and cooled by shooting fountains embellished the crossings. In the city center stood a lofty marble palace of exquisite design, tastefully trimmed in gold. This was Pearl River, the great shady capital. He admired the fine dress of the citizens and their healthy bodies adorned with jewels and gold. Still dressed in a yogi's rags, he was unnerved by the frequent stares. He was greatly out of place, yet he was to be king of this land. Oh, Indra, he thought, what is to happen now? How could he possibly assume the Chedi throne? The people were all kind, but no one seemed to take him seriously. He had renounced his wealth and owned nothing, not even a sword or a bow. He had only Indra's word that he, Vasu, was to rule this mighty opulent realm of Chedi. What was he to do? Perhaps he should knock on the palace door and explain that he was Chedi's new king. He laughed at the idea, for now he stayed in the city center where the royal palace loomed above lovely Pearl River. Suddenly, with a heart-stopping thunderclap, heavy rain rushed down. As he sought shelter, the downpour drenched him, mud splattered him, he sighed. He had never looked worse, never so wretched and dirty. Indra, god of thunder and rain, had sent him a personal welcome. Still, the sun darted and flashed through the tropical rain clouds. Spying shelter, Prince Vasu dashed under an artfully carved arcade built of red sandstone that glistened in the rain and sun. Waiting for the rain to cease, he noticed a large hill rising behind the river. A friendly merchant sh sheltering there said, young man, are you from the capital? No, sir, this is my first time here, Vasu said. Sorry about this unseasonal rain, the man said. Both its timing and the sheer quantity of rain are most unusual for this region. What luck? Was it actually Indra or some mischievous spirit of nature? Looking at the prince's ragged, muddy clothes, the merchant said, whoever you may be, welcome to our city. That hill you stare at behind the river is Kolahala, the uproarious one. You can hear the wind roar by the hill. Some citizens even believe that a dangerous spirit lives within its slopes. Perhaps those people were right, for the great hill began to groan and shake most strangely. Crowds suddenly ran about the city center, shouting in utter panic and desperation. Vasu strained to decipher their cries. Oh, Lord, cried the merchant. A girl is trapped up on the hill, and it's about to split in the storm. It's a landslide. She'll die in the mud or the river. Who can save her? The young girl apparently had not feared the malevolent spirit said to inhabit the hill. She had been sitting on a grassy plateau of Mount Kolahala high above the river. Her life was now in grave danger. Instantly, Prince Vasu raced toward the river. As he ran, he astonished the people and himself by his superhuman speed. But there was no time to think about that now. Reaching the bank, he raced toward that spot directly across the river from the hill. The girl desperately clung to a tree. The riotous hill quaked, roared, and split. A dislodged slab of slope slid free and plunged onto lovely Pearl River as if to ravish its waters. 
Vasu watched it in horror as the girl plunged with the cry into the river's deep seething waters. The waves churned violently as if struggling against the hill's assault. Vasu would now test his new Indra-given powers. Indeed, he staked his life on them, for he must try to save the girl. He ran to the riverbank and dove into the wild flood. So that's the end of that chapter. Read one more. Um, in a hamlet of sages on the bank of holy uh, anyway the bank of holy Jamuna oops one second the bank of Holy Jamuna. Young Satyavati cried out in anguish. By the power of Parashara's words, she saw a young girl, not much older than herself, thrashing about in the river, as if in her death throes. Parashara honored her concern with the bow of his head and continued narrating. Satyavati saw it all. Grasping the still conscious girl with one arm and shouting to her through the din to hold on to him, which she somehow did. He fought his way to shore with his other arm, astonished at his own power. Indra had not failed him. As he emerged <coughs> from the river, carrying the girl, deafening cheers greeted him from the swelling crowds. Prince Vasu carried the girl to higher ground, placing her gently on soft grass. Her eyes were closed, but she breathed. The rain stopped as quickly as it came, and the tropical sun shone brightly. Vasu gently pushed her silken locks from her lovely face and prayed. She opened her eyes, startled to see a bearded face with long tangled hair staring down at her. She tried to hold him in her gaze and to thank him, but strength failed her. Vasu entreated her to rest and conserve her energy. She faintly nodded her agreement, parted her lips and gasped, thank you, you saved my life. He shook his head, told her that God had saved her and urged her again to conserve her strength. But she would speak. Who are you? She whispered faintly. I am Prince Vasu, son of Sudanu and grandson of great Kuru. And I am your faithful servant. Please rest. She smiled faintly and in a barely, barely audible murmur said, I am honored to meet a Kuru prince. I am Girika. She smiled and bowed to her. After a minute, an amused smile spread faintly over her face. He looked at her quizzically, and she whispered in a slightly stronger tone, Prince, forgive me. At this moment, I am unable to offer you a proper royal reception. Too weak to laugh, her eyes filled with affectionate mirth. The crisis having passed, Vasu observed that she was indeed a very lovely and bright young girl. But before he could say something kind and witty, the platoon of armed royal guards rushed toward them, cleared away onlookers and signaled physicians who raced to Girika. Vasu obeyed the polite request that he move back and give room to the medical experts. Quickly ascertaining that her condition was not life-threatening, they administered herbal relaxants and ordered that she be lifted by guards into a royal chariot. Becoming drowsy under the power of those herbs, the girl's eyes, before they closed, searched for Vasu. Finding him, she said, 
come to see me and fell unconscious. Surrounded by female attendants, she was quickly driven toward the city. A royal minister approached Vasa, who stood gazing at Girika's swiftly vanishing chariot with respectful inquiries, which Vasu answered with equal decorum. The minister learned that Vasu was a Kuru prince. With much esteem and gratitude, he thanked Vasu for saving the girl's life. Vasu protested that he had simply done his duty. The minister insisted that Vasu accompany him to the royal palace and that he stay there as long as he wished as the honored guest of the Queen of Chedi. Vasu gratefully accepted the invitation and then asked, Forgive my ignorance, for I've spent several years in the wilderness, engaged in austere yoga. Kindly tell me, who is the Queen of Chedi? The minister smiled. You just saved her life. My dear prince, like it or not, you are a national hero in Chedi. News of your most heroic act has surely spread throughout the capital. By tomorrow, it will be known throughout the nation. For now, I just hope we can get you through the crowds of citizens that are waiting to catch a glimpse of you and shout their gratitude. It was my great honor to serve your noble queen and the king, her husband. Oh, we have no king, not yet. Many have tried to win her hand, but our queen Girika is not easily impressed with young royals. I see. Was this Indra's plan? Vasu had barely arrived in Chedi, yet he had already saved the life of his queen, thus becoming a national hero. Further, he suspected, after a very short acquaintance, that he could love the beautiful young queen. But could she love him? The minister and a military escort somehow brought him through the cheering crowds. He saw that the people of Chedi loved their queen and they adored the prince who saved her. It must be Indra. He was taken to the royal palace. Closely encircled by his military escort and surrounded by large, tumultuous crowds, he barely saw or noticed anything around him till he was actually inside the palace. The minister took him to an opulent suite, finely furnished. His rooms enjoyed extensive natural light and breezes and opened onto a lush private garden. The minister asked with no trace of pride or presumption if these accommodations were adequate. They certainly were. Having spent a few years in, in a most austere wilderness, Vasu found his quarters in the Chedi Palace to be worthy of Indra himself. Finally, the minister opened the closet door and pointed out a wide row of princely garments that might please the prince. The prince was pleased indeed. His present duty made his ragged yoga garb obsolete. The minister excused himself, bowed, and left the Kuru prince to bathe and dress. Vasu spent the evening in the balmy, scented air of his personal garden. He wondered how Girika was recovering, what she was doing, and what she thought of him. The next morning, handsomely uniformed palace staff brought him a sumptuous breakfast. He went out to walk in the city, but was soon recognized and had to flee back to the palace as exuberant crowds of admirers quickly gathered. Soon after, a herald came to the door and delivered a message from Queen Girika. The queen requested the honor of his presence at lunch. He accepted with warm alacrity and eloquent expressions of gratitude. When he arrived for what looked to be a royal banquet, the young queen gazed at him approvingly. Gone was the disheveled, scruffy, bearded yogi. In his place came an elegant, handsome Kuru prince. 
Prince Vasu knew that the queen was duly informed of his identity as Kuru royalty. Girika was quickly recovering her strength. She greeted Vasu like an old friend to his great pleasure, and he reciprocated. She offered him earnest and repeated thanks for saving her life. He was honored to have the chance to render service to her majesty. The young royal seemed engaged in a competition of civilities and appreciation. He took his seat facing young Girika. After a light banter at the sumptuous meal, Girika invited Vasu to her garden, which spread for acres with manufactured emerald lawns, fruit and flower-bearing trees and gently rolling meadows. Once they were alone, he sincerely inquired about her health. She assured him that the expert prognosis was for a full recovery, full rapid recovery. I thank Vishnu for that, he exclaimed spontaneously. By all means, she said with an inscrutable smile, let us thank Vishnu. Did she speak in earnest? Did she accept Vishnu as he did, as the highest cosmic authority? Or did she speak mere diplomacy? Worse yet, could lovely Girika have sympathy for or be one of the Asuras? Were her words meant to mislead him and gain his confidence? He was strongly inclined toward the first thesis that she truly accepted Vishnu. In that case, she might marry him, fulfilling Indra's promise. His heart wished and prayed for that, but he must be cautious. The planet, indeed the three worlds, were at stake. He longed to know more about lovely Girika, but diplomacy and decency demanded that he not press heavy issues on a convalescing queen who was hosting him in her palace. So he ventured a lighthearted observation that it was unusual for a queen to sit alone on a mountain. She laughed, you are a Kuru prince and you spent years alone in the deep forest. Her voice turned grave. I went to Mount Kolahala because I am mourning my dear father, the king. He recently left this world. I wanted to be alone to deal with my grief. Vasu's attempt at clever banter had ended in disaster. He tried to undo the damage. I'm truly sorry you lost your father. Be so kind as to accept my sincere condolences. Had I known, I would never have spoken as I did. Please forgive me. His words pleased her. She thanked him and insisted that he need not apologize. Then, perhaps to help him avoid another clumsy query, she revealed that her mother, the queen, had also gone to the world beyond. So, the young monarch concluded, as the only child of my late parents, I rule alone, at least for now. But if you permit me to ask, what brings you here to our country, so far from the Kuru lands? He then briefly explained how, having no kingdom, he renounced this world and aspired to Indra's world. I understand your decision, given the circumstances, Girika said. But even in Indra's world, despite an extremely long lifespan, you will still be mortal. You will die, lose your celestial body, and fall again to earth. Why aspire to that? Um, why not aspire to Vishnu's eternal world? Why pray to someone and then seek a good life elsewhere? Forgive me, but I'm just curious. Vasu stared astonished. The young queen was actually preaching to him to accept Vasu, Vishnu. And Asura would never do that. Asuras could be cunning and duplicitous, but 
but they held it beneath their dignity and pride to feign devotion to their foe, Vishnu, even for strategic gain. No, Queen Girika was actually a Vaishnavi, a devotee of Vishnu. Excuse me, she said, but you're staring at me, kind of replied to my questions. Of course, he thought, Girika is testing me just as I was testing her, and with the same purpose. He smiled broadly and apologized for staring. He knew he could tell Girika the full truth, and he proceeded to do so. He revealed that Indra had personally come to see him, urging the prince to abandon his project of ascending to Indra's world. The prince should stay on earth to protect it. Lord Indra came to you, she exclaimed. That is extraordinary. I believe you, but why would Indra urge you to stay here to protect our planet? Protected from what? From whom? Apart from a few recent tragic incidents of beasts unnaturally killing forest sages, we have no problem on earth. There's peace everywhere. Indeed, Queen Girika, you react precisely as I did when Indra first told me to stay and protect this world. You asked the same questions. Indeed. So how did Lord Indra change your mind? Was it by his personal grandeur and power? Or did he give you information that I and other monarchs do not presently possess? He glanced at Girika, who remained grave. Indra told me that the awful attacks on sages are but harbingers of far more terrible things to come. He further told me that I can reveal the whole truth only to my wife and children and to those devoted to Vishnu. If I may ask, Girika said in what seemed like a disappointed tone, who are your wife and children? I'm sorry, I meant my future wife and children. I'm not married. I see, she said with a smile. You may safely consider me to be devoted to Vishnu. Clearly, she was testing his trust in her. He did trust her and told her the truth. I do not wish to alarm you, but Asuras taking birth as wild beasts are attacking those sages devoted to Vishnu. The Asuras believe that by thus sabotaging Vaishnava Yagyas, they will weaken Vishnu and ultimately destroy him. It pains me to say that but I must tell you what Indra told me. Apart from that, Asuras are invading the earth, taking birth in royal families. They will thus legally inherit powerful kingdoms, attack weaker realms, and gradually control this planet. They will then use earth as a base from which to attack and subjugate the three worlds. Girika turned pale. It was her turn to silently stare. Vasu continued, we must stop the Asuras here on earth. Indra insisted that I would play a leading role in Earth's defense. He promised to make me a king, to be honest, the leading king. Here he stopped, studying Girika's reaction. She nodded silently as if thinking deeply. Then she spoke, Prince, I congratulate you on your great fortune. And you are absolutely sure that Indra told you that the Asuras, the Asuras who inhabit higher realms are invading this Earth I'm absolutely sure there is no mistake. I see. This is most serious. Girika lowered her head and closed her eyes in deep concentration. Most serious indeed. She looked up with wide open eyes. And to counter this threat, you will rule a kingdom and eventually become king of kings. Yes, Vasu said, I am to use my kingdom as a base from which to protect the world. Girika's irrepressible smile returned. So you, a presently homeless royal, are to be king of kings on this planet. I swear on my honor, it was not my idea. Girika stood up and began to pace the garden in which they had been sitting. She stopped, turned to face him and said, 
Tell me, did Indra mention which kingdom will be yours? Prince Vasu stood up to face her. Girika's eyes bore down on him. Deception, even diplomacy, would fail with brilliant Queen Girika. Forgive me, noble lady. I speak only what great Indra told me. I am to rule this righteous kingdom of Shady. Girika nodded. Well, well, I confess I suspected as much. So if we are to be practical here, you can, you can only rule this land of Shady in one of two ways. Vasu looked carefully at her. What are those two ways? Girika smiled but spoke boldly as a proud monarch. Prince Vasu, you must either defeat me in battle, she paused, or else, or else you must win my heart. Vasu gave out a sigh of relief and a broad smile lit up his face. I assure you, he said with a bow, that I will never attack you or your realm. I cannot speak for your heart. But if I may speak plainly, I fear you are rapidly winning mine. Her face glowed at these words. With a mischievous smile, she said, you fear I'm winning your heart. Come, Prince, surely you do not fear me. Her smile was contagious. His heart stirred, their eyes locked. He said, I do not fear you. I know in my heart that you are too just and kind to pose any danger to an honest prince who seeks only the good of the world and your happiness. Well spoken, she said in high spirits. So I'm going to stop there for today. So uh, I hope uh, you all enjoyed that reading. Wow. Yes, very much. Mind blowing. You, you sure you don't want to do more? Quite sure. Uh, because I've got to uh, got to get some work done. I've got to do some writing, actually. Would you take a couple of questions? Yes. So how do the kids like it? Parama, how did your kids like it? Um, how did you guys like it? I liked it. I thought it was pretty interesting. It kind of <laughs> remind us, reminded us of Justin Davis. <laughs> Similar elements. Probably the same writer. <laughs> so any questions? When I was, when I was uh, reading the uh, the previous chapters, the, the ones you read the other day, Taraka Prabhu had a question. Um, he's still online. Would, Prabhu, would you like to, do you re remember what you asked? Would you like to reformulate it? I can try. <clears throat> uh, kindly accept my obeisances, Maharaj. Lord I am, uh, in general, I'm, I'm curious to know more about your process for creating this work. Mm. Um, I, um, what I understood from Sarvatma Prabhu was that um, uh, you had, you were drawing upon portions of Mahabharata that were described in Srimad Bhagavatam. Um, I, it's, I'm, I'm taking it for granted that, uh, that this, this is not, um, a, a translation of no. existing text. This is something which, which, you know, you have created these dialogues. So I, I'm curious to understand something more about the, the process of that creation. Good question. Um, 
The, uh, I'm following a few basic principles. Uh, one is that these are real people and they tend to act like real people. And, and they have given, given their situation, uh, you know, what would their motives be? Um, also, um, I'm trying to correct, I think, I mean, there, there are all kinds of problems with the Mahabharata text, text we have today. Madhvacharya, Madhvacharya and virtually all Western scholars, or even just all scholars from whatever country they're from, agree that the Sanskrit text of the Mahabharata we have today is a highly corrupted text. And Madhvacharya said that. Actually, I learned it from him. So as I said, as they say, don't don't kill the messenger. So um, so the Bhagavatam is not a corrupt text. The Bhagavatam is a pure text, which Lord Chaitanya accepted, and all the Acharyas accepted. And the Mahabharata, I mean, the Bhagavatam gives some of the same story. So whenever there is a, a story in the Mahabharata, which is also told in the Bhagavatam, and often they're different, not always, but quite often they're different, then I take the Bhagavatam story because it's a pure text approved by Lord Chaitanya. And, and Jiva Goswami in his Tattva Sandarbha pointed out that it's our most important or most authoritative source of reliable information, reliable spiritual information. So um, my conviction is that um, to really enter into the Mahabharata, not like sort of like the devotional comic book version, but to really enter into the story, um, for one thing, you have to know the historical context. So for example, when the Pandavas took birth and the Pandavas are going to take birth four generations later, this is the story of Vasu and, and Girika and so on is four generations before Krishna and the Pandavas come. But the Pandavas, and of course Krishna, were very keenly aware of these things. Very keenly aware. And so it's just like if you're born in America today, uh, let, let's, say, let's say you're a college student today. Uh, it would be like, let's say, knowing about World War I. I mean, obviously, any, let's say, young person today who's not a fool. So I guess, anyway. I won't make a sarcastic remark on what the percentage is that aren't fools, but but if you look at if you look at let's say you know let's say, let's say a college student today say a college student who is majoring in uh, history and political science. I mean, obviously, that person knows all about World War One. May have a great 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 grandfather that was that was in World War One or have a grandfather or great-grandfather that was in World War II or something. So, I mean, we know that. We see documents. And so the Pandavas, for the Pandavas, uh, they were born into a world in which they knew all these things very well. 
And so my goal is not to have you, as is typically the case with Mahavarta books, sort of look at these people, but to actually look at the world through their eyes to see what they're seeing. And to really, so really, I mean, if this book succeeds, it's meant to be a time machine. Actually take you back there so you can you can really be alive during that time and experience everything as it happened. So, um, so the Mahabharata, for example, it, it has one of the biggest problems in the, there, I mean, there are many problems in the, in the, the Sanskrit text we have today, which as I said, Madhvacharya and virtually all scholars around the world agree is a very corrupted text and we have evidence that so um so the Mahabharata tells just to give one example that uh Vasa was meditating and we know I mean we can look it up that Vasa was a Kuru all that's historically accurate he was the son of Janu and the grandson of Kuru himself he had no kingdom he was meditating somewhere in the wilderness and the reason the world the, the reason the world was so peaceful, and it was like a golden age, and everyone was very naive and unsuspecting, which is one of the reasons the uh, the Asuras chose this planet to invade. The reason everyone was so naive is because all these events are taking place in the aftermath of Lord Parashuram. Lord Parashuram, who's still alive during the Mahabharata because he fights with Bhishma. So Lord Parashuram killed all these bad Kshatriyas. And then there were all these young Kshatriya girls of marriage age. And what were they supposed to do? And who was supposed to govern the world? So it was arranged that the purest Brahmins would, would or they would approach the purest Brahmins who would give them sons. And so the Kshatriya order was recreated, regenerated. But because you have all these kings whose fathers were pure sages. The kings tend to be like sages. And of course, at the time of, uh, of King Vasu and Pratipa, who's a Kuru king, who's actually just sitting on the Ganges as a yogi meditating, I mean, there's nothing to do. There's nothing to manage. There's no crime. There's, you know, there are no poor people. So he's got a lot of free time. Vasu's got a lot of free time, so he's just meditating for the benefit of the world. So, uh, and, and then the Asuras start invading. So this is actually the story of the Mahabharata, but what happens is Mahabharata has a terrible case of what I call narrative amnesia, in the sense that, uh, it, I mean, the Mahabharata in the beginning, the Adi Parva, it lays this out very clearly, very systematically that the earth is invaded, the Asuras are invading the earth, and it's explained why they're invading the earth and so on. But then it just like forgets about that and just goes all over the place. It's, it's just, frankly, it's a mess. So for example, when Indra comes to Vasu and tells him, stop meditating, you know, stop trying to go to my planet. First of all, there's some strange things about that story, which you have to figure out, which let's say, a careful observer would notice. One is that, um, why would Indra come himself? That is absolutely not the way it's done. I mean, what Indra always does when someone's aspiring to take his place, he just takes out a contract on the yogi. 
you know, he calls an upsar up, like in the mafia, you know, takes out a contract and uh, sends an upsara to break this person's austerities and so on. So why would Indra come himself? And also, it's not really said that Vasu wanted to become Indra. He just wanted to go to Indra Loka. So why would that bother Indra? Since he was actually becoming qualified. So what's really happening? And then, just because Vasu says, okay, I won't go to Indra Loka. Okay, you're going to be the emperor. I mean, those are pretty rich rewards for someone that, you know, just said, okay, I won't go to Indra Loka. He becomes the, he said, I'll make you the emperor. I'll give you this crystal airship. Emperor of the world. He's going to make him the emperor of the world. For what? What's really going on? There? What's really going on, in my view, is that Indra came to convince him to protect the world and the Asuras. And he told him not to go to, like, just like I say, that you should stay on earth because, and I'll make you the emperor so you can lead the resistance against the Asuras. And so that's just an example of how everything in my vision of what really happened feeds into the central story. There's like one central story. Just like in Star Wars, there's one central story, many subplots, many secondary stories, but one central story, namely, you know, the good Democrats versus the bad imperialists. You know, it's a big surprise there for Hollywood. So anyway, um, so that's just an example of how I'm trying to reconstruct it. What would real people do? What would, what would the real motives be and so on? So thank you very much. I've actually got to run. So, uh, uh, so thank you all very much. Appreciate your time. And hopefully we'll see you again for too long. We want to thank you thank as you. well. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Thank you. Hare Krishna. Hare Bo. Thank you, Maharaj. Thank you, Maharaj. Thank you, Maharaj. Hare Bo.